Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well then, you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is August 25th, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, As always, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? How are you, Neil? Are you still with us? I understand you have a a rainstorm and you're uh, relocated to your your bunker. Is that correct? Yes, I am. (laughs) I am taking refuge in my basement where... You cannot hear the storm raging. All right, so we've we've got uh, my analyst in his safe room. So we'll we'll <laughs> proceed on a secure communication. Uh, as always, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, um, which I put together with my team at Hedgeye Risk Management. You can Google it, find out about it. I got our newswire, watch the show on COVID-19, special interviews, everything else we do. Uh, As always, we've got uh, a large agenda. I I think we can get through this one where we'll cover the economy first, uh, go into a little bit what I, well, I and we see happening uh, in in August. Uh, We're going to go on and talk about what's uh, economic indicators around the world. We have a number of uh, places. This is going to be a little bit more global than most of our podcast. I know we have something to say about China, Hong Kong, uh, Thailand, Canada, uh, Israel, with the uh, new recognition by the United Arab Emirates, the ongoing war in Libya and how god-awful complicated that is um, <laughs> with, with about four different groups that have different kind of interests. Uh, some update on the politics in Italy, Belarus. Finally, we're going to say something about the conventions, the ongoing prospects of the 2020 election. And uh, I believe we're going to end this with a um, a summary of a, a piece I did in the Newswire on the uh, supposed boomer apocalypse in, in housing. In other words, all the houses that aging boomers will not be able to sell when they get older. This is a long-term 20-year forecast based to some extent on demographic data. I will assess uh, what I think of it. I actually actually partially agree, partially disagree. I don't think it's going to be an apocalypse for boomer homes, although I do think it's going to be a terribly limited period for new um, housing unit construction overall. Uh, that's a distinction we'll get into. So with that, why don't you just take us into um, uh, markets, Christian? All right. Well, over the last five trading days, the S&P 500 is up 1.5% and the global Dow is up 0.7%. As for volatility, the VIX came in at 22.37. It's been in that range for last month and a half now. So not much movement. And if we go on to U.S. indicators, we got the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index. Now, this had a huge drop, Neil. In July, this was reading at 24.1. 
In August, it came in at 17.2. That is its lowest reading in three months. So really showing a slowdown in activity there. So it's, uh, that's, that's down toward uh, no growth, right? Right. And that's Close to no growth. Yeah. And also, I, I just to remind uh, uh, listeners, I think we covered the Empire Index from uh, New York, which said something similar, I think, about a week ago. But anyway, go, go ahead. Right. Well, we got a little bit better news from market manufacturing PMI flash data. That came in at 53.6 for August. If you remember July, it was at 50.9. This saw the first rise in foreign client demand since December of 2019. Uh, Services flash was also up. July was 50. August, it came in at 54.8. Employment saw its steepest growth in the service industry since uh, February. Right. And the composite was 54.7 for August. Yeah, pretty good uh, given the depth of how much it went down and not exactly the V-shape we were expecting. Right. Well, I'll finish this up here with the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. Now, remember, Neil, this is slow to come out. You always get it about a month before. So we just got the July data and it really doesn't move that much. But in June, if you remember, you had that record-breaking 5.33. You know, the average of the index is usually about 0.01. July, that fell. We're now at 1.18. So we're still seeing growth, but as most people say, it's not a great sign that it's coming back down so fast. Yeah, it's uh, that's the index that takes about, what, nearly 100 different things and uh, combines right. them all together to some kind of a cluster analysis. You know, my my take is obviously flash PMIs are are measuring the early part of the month. We'll get more in the later part of the month, I guess, in the final PMI. I do expect uh, to see it decline uh, from final, you know, from flash to final uh, only because I I expect August to be a a time of declining activity overall. I I say that partly based on the um, U.S. uh, real-time population survey, which is this wonderful indicator, uh, you know, which actually takes the census data uh, that the BLS uses and actually gives you a week-by-week reading. And we're seeing employment rate actually tick down and unemployment rate ticked up in the week of uh, August 9th to 15th. Uh, it's back up, you know, unemployment rate over 15%. My gosh, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> Under ordinary circumstances, that would seem pretty horrible, but we're kind of just plateauing around there. Um, and what I see happening, as I suspected uh, over the last, uh, and I think I've said this over the last couple of podcasts, is the the suspension of benefits, uh, which happened ending on the week of, of July 25th, um, had the short-term impact of increasing employment. Obviously, a lot of people have to go back to work uh, for income, but it has the uh, longer term negative impact of less aggregate demand. And so I I do see this as going to be a very disappointing uh, late August. And this may just kind of, you know, move into September, this lower momentum. You know, meanwhile, you do have a very gradual decline in deaths. Uh, our seven-day average of deaths is now, as of two days ago, under 1,000. So we're now down to 980. Uh, and this is following uh, a bigger month-long decline in in new cases. I would just say the cautionary note here is that, is that clearly weather 
is a factor, according to all of the studies I've seen of the impact on climate, even kind of multi-variable studies taking every, everything into account. Uh, late August is the very best weather uh, for uh, low uh, infectivity or low transmission of COVID-19. It's the hottest and the wettest, most humid, uh, and obviously, obviously going forward, gradually the weather uh, is going to become a factor uh, the other way. Uh, I will mention, by the way, those who follow me on my COVID report will appreciate this uh, amazing news that on August 8th, I mean, this is this is tragic in a way, but I, I think it's worth pointing out uh, as very consistent with points that I've been making in my COVID report, but there is a Starbucks in Paju, South Korea, which is just north of uh, Seoul, um, I mean, not too much north. <laughs> that would be in the wrong country, but but just kind of a, just just barely no, north of uh, Seoul. And um, apparently, uh, someone what they call what the CDC uh, likes to call an index person is epidemiologist. You know, the person who spreads uh, a disease. Uh, an index person uh, with COVID nineteen apparently walked into the store, sat upstairs. It was a two story uh, Starbucks right underneath an air conditioner um, and, you know, had, I don't know what they, what they ate, what they drank, uh, was there for two hours uh, as the air conditioner was running, you know, <laughs> circulating air away from this person. Turns out so far, 66 infected people uh, from this one incident have been found thus far. But here's the interesting part. No one in that Starbucks who was wearing a mask uh, was infected. Uh, and there were four, uh, at least four employees wearing a KF94 masks. It's, it's a Korean equivalent of the, of the K95. Uh, these are, you call these respirators, actually, more than masks. These are very good masks. None of them were infected. Uh, most of the other people in Starbucks uh, were infected. Uh, obviously, you know, they're drinking and eating. <laughs> <laughs> unlike the employees, right? <laughs> uh, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but this actually reinforces two things that I talk about a lot in my COVID report. We go through, you know, chapter and verse of studies. Um, the huge role of uh, spread of the disease through aerosols. We now know that that's happening, and that's actually underlines the importance of face masks. Face masks do stop aerosols, both from the transmitter and more importantly from the receiver. Both ways, uh, face masks help, even just regular surgical masks help. And the other thing this points out, uh, and this actually was the big topic of my last video. When, when did I give that, uh, Christian? Was that uh, last, I believe that was last Thursday? Yep, last Thursday. The huge uh, merging research showing that super spreaders uh, are not just the exception. They may be the rule. Uh, COVID-19 may be spread largely through super spreaders. And it's a very interesting that as, as a lot of people have become sort of amateur epidemiologists, I find, you know, we all become experts of this and everyone knows about r naught and, you know, the kind of the rate of serial transmission spread, how fast it, you know, uh, grows, you know, from one generation of transmission to the next. There's another uh, variable that's becoming uh, the topic of a lot more uh, attention. And that is something called K, which is the dispersion among r of individuals. So 
this this varies a lot. A low K means a high dispersion. A high K means a low dispersion. Um, and it turns out that uh, some diseases, by their very nature, have a low K. Uh, Ebola, for example, has a low K, and so does um, COVID-19. All the coronaviruses, in fact, and SARS and MERS had it as well. This has a very low K, high dispersion. What does that mean? It means that most people who get the disease never transmit it. A very small number do all the transmitting. And it may be as radical as, you know, 10% of people infected people responsible for 85% of transmissions, you know, 2% responsible for 50% of transmissions. This is very unlike influenza, which has a very slow dispersion. Influenza grinds on. Everyone who gets influenza... Okay, if you're not around someone, you might not give it to anyone. But if you do, you give it to two or three other people. And (laughs) what this means, it has a much more predictable spread pattern. And um, I went through, uh, actually, on that episode uh, about talking about how this is consistent with everything we've learned about coronavirus, right? Uh, How unpredictable its spread is, how a new person comes into a population. Absolutely nothing usually happens, but sometimes it spreads explosively. And most of all... It underlines the importance of of restricting mass gatherings. And it turns out, according to the most recent research that came out of the University of Wisconsin, if you did nothing else, no other means of suppression, that is to say, even forget even face masks, but if you did nothing else but simply prevent people from gathering in uh, groups of more than 15 or 20, that might push society-wide or not under one, right? Just that. Why? Because only a few people are doing all the spreading. So if you limit those people to at most a few other people, then the whole thing dies off exponentially. Anyway, fascinating new work, a lot more to be done on that. But I think as we find out more about the behavior of the disease, we find out a lot more about how to counter it. Uh, And unfortunately, too much time I sometimes think is spent on, you know, ultra high tech you know, biology and, and, you know, very, very exotic ways of, of getting, you know, delivering people uh, vaccines and getting their immune system to respond. But I think some of this uh, uh, wisdom that comes from epidemiology is, is, is really worth paying attention to. All right, let's go on to uh, around the world. What do we see? Um, I think you had something coming in from Japan and it didn't look good. No, we got uh, some flash PMIs from Japan for August. Manufacturing came in at 46.6. Neil, that is 16 straight months of contraction. Uh, For services, they were expecting it to be around 51. It came in at 45. These are terrible numbers by any means. Got it. All right. What else you got? All right, well, I got some things from Australia. We got PMI flashes there as well. Uh, manufacturing was the same for August as it was July, but again, services had a major drop. It went from 58.2 in July to 48.1 in August. Australia saw flare-ups of the coronavirus in certain cities. New restrictions were put down, and we see the same scenario happening in the Eurozone. Their uh, manufacturing flash was the same in August as it was July, but their services fell from 54.7 in July to 50.1 in August. Same story, you know. They had, some countries had some flare-ups, things get locked down, and you're going to see that in the service industry. Yeah, the, the difference is, of course, in Australia and the Eurozone, you know, their, their flare-ups is what we would call, 
eradication of the disease. I mean, if you just look right. <laughs> quantitatively at the infection levels per capita they're responding to. All right, let's move on. Um, I know you had some news you were going to report on on uh, China and Hong Kong. Right. So just a little bit of news on Hong Kong. The U.S. has suspended three bilateral agreements with Hong Kong. This was an extradition agreement and some tax exemptions on income coming from international shipping. You know, this is just added on on the other you know sanctions the Trump administration has put on. Not huge, go- much new going on, but uh, well, I also had an interesting. It's story. basically it's basically following through on the idea that we're going to treat Hong Kong just like the rest of China, right? In other words, this is just right fulfilling the pledge to get rid of all of Hong Kong's uh, trading and financial privileges, as well, I guess, exactly. as legal ones, <laughs> extradition as well. So, right. yeah, well. My second story from China was, you know, as Hong Kong's been going on under, like in mainland China, what people didn't see what was happening is that uh, Xi Jinping has been having a purge of the domestic security apparatus. They are arresting and taking into custody police officers. The Shanghai chief of police was taken away and they are going to be put into Recidification courses where they will study the speeches of Xi Jinping and retrain their minds. You know, these people were thought to be as critics of uh, the Chinese government, and Xi Jinping wants there to be no internal disagreement with them. And he is doing everything he can to get rid of any opposition. Well, that's, uh, yeah, so he, he obviously he's up for re election in a couple of years, right? So <clears throat> he wants exactly. to make sure that goes on without a hitch. I'm sure they will right. grovel in the dirt and admit their guilt, and um, and, <laughs> and and gradually they will be forgiven in those reeducation camps. That's interesting. Um, right. So it it's interesting. You know, I <clears throat> I'm looking a little bit at uh, the impact on the election. Uh, we've talked a little bit about whether Trump wants uh, whether China wants Trump or Biden to win. I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, no one knows. We hear reports coming back. I've cited a, a few people like like Henry Kissinger, you know, talking to people. Um, the argument for for favoring Trump, I think, is clear. Uh, and we've talked about it here. But you can imagine Biden as well. I think the one thing that Trump uh, that, that excuse me, that China does not like about Trump or the way they fear him is the thing China wants most of all is certainty. They don't like unpredictability. And Trump, despite the fact that his, uh, you know, tariff war really hasn't hurt China that much, you know, particularly now that it's really not being enforced in kind of dead letter, um, is not really harming China. And as we've talked about often, you know, um, I think Xi Jinping gets along fine with Trump, sort of, you know, leader to leader, person to person. I think the issue with uh, with with Biden is uh, that he's more steady, more certain. You know, when Biden Biden will announce long before what he does, what he intends to do, I think China will like that. On the other hand, I think they might not like the fact that Biden probably wants to rally uh, all of the Western allies, um, uh, all of the high income allies of the world, I should say, uh, against China in a much more useful coalition 
uh, and, you know, possibly to, you know, start leading other kinds of trade, trade deals and so on that will be unfavorable to China. The biggest wild card that if I were Xi Jinping, I'd worry about Biden because I think it's going to be an issue is is human rights. You know, whether you're talking about, um, you know, Hong Kong dissidents uh, or the Uyghurs or, you know, you know, any anyone else who who is not treated fairly by China. I don't think Trump cares too much. I think China will almost uh, I think Biden will almost certainly make, uh, make a big issue of that. <clears throat> the one thing I don't understand is is why Trump has not yet dumped phase one of his tariff. Uh, it hasn't worked. Uh, the the uh China imports from the United States are not even close to halfway uh, to the target at six months that they were supposed to be. Uh, but I think Trump doesn't want to make a deal of it yet. Um, I was surprised. I thought he might make a deal of it before the convention. The convention's already started. Uh, maybe he will before the uh, before the elections. So, you know, there you are. Let's uh, let's move on to another area, uh, uh, another. Uh, country in the area, Thailand. Right. The protests in Thailand continue to grow, Neil. Uh, the government, though, is taking a harder stance than they were. You know, Prime Minister Chan Ucha has ordered the police to start arresting many of the leaders of these protests, but the numbers keep growing and you're getting a broader coalition. You know, in the beginning, it was mostly students, but you are seeing older adults joining these protests and they are it seems to be really growing this movement for democracy. Whether it goes anywhere, that's I'm not sure about that. Yes, well, you know, I, I believe it's going to continue. We we talked earlier about the anomaly of, of Thailand having a, such an incredible um, sort of backward feudal system of government with it with a relatively high income economy. Um, I did have a a um, a listener. Um, uh, you know, notify me that I was, I made a mistake in my last podcast. I talked about King Vagira Longcorn, who is the, uh, the the current king. He was uh, actually acceded to the throne only three years ago. I talked to him about as a, a young playboy. Well, it turns out he's actually age 68, <laughs> not young at all. He was made <laughs> crown prince back in 1972 at age 20. Um, look, I, I was I think I was just uh, distracted by the, you know, the 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 boy part of Playboy. You know, the guy, the guy is definitely a Playboy. He lives in Germany, uh, in Bavaria, and he lives it up. Uh, he has, let's see, what does he has? He has uh, five or six kids. He's had three wives. Uh, he has a had a multitude of mistresses. There is a great. Uh, WikiLeaks home video uh, out there of him celebrating the birthday of his poodle uh, with his princess wearing a G-string and all the servants in formal attire. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you just can't make up. Obviously, all, all imported publications that uh, that denigrate uh, the king in any way are censored. And uh, the other interesting fact about uh, Vagira Longcorn. Uh, and that dynasty, I believe, is the tenth member of that dynasty. Is they have an enormous uh, net worth? Uh, yeah, he is apparently worth forty-three billion dollars, uh, which makes him the wealthiest ruler in the world. And a forty-three billion dollar—I mean, that would be a a pretty good sovereign wealth fund, right, for a country like Thailand. <laughs> Uh, which so almost that amount of wealth it, uh, in in itself almost becomes a political issue. 
and and it's certainly tied up with the close connection between the monarchy, the military, uh, and the generals and prime minister that, that serves them. Next on our line, I believe, is Canada. So what's happening yes. in Canada? Well, the Conservative Party held an election to have a new leader, and in somewhat of a surprise, Aaron O'Toole came out victorious and is now the leader of the Conservative Party. He ran a campaign really focused on blue-collar voters. He talked a lot about how anti-cancel culture he was, and he really got a broad coalition, and he especially brought in the social conservatives, which I find interesting because he is pro or uh, pro-choice. He's also pro-LGBTQ rights, but he was able to be victorious, and he's now hoping for an election to take on Trudeau, who, as you know, Neil, he's having some troubles right now. That He's in an ethics violation investigation. Uh, COVID's still going on the background as he's focused on this, and it will be interesting to see if the conservatives will finally be able to take on Trudeau. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a guy with uh, a little bit more uh, um, kind of visceral depth to him than Peter McKay. I think the the right. the, the the problem with Peter McKay was he, he was a creature of Ottawa. I mean, he's been he was just sort of groomed for this role. Uh, he was he was politically correct, and it's true that that you know. Uh, on the outside, Aaron O'Toole is is sort of you know heating the line. Yes, he's 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 certainly he's fine on gay marriage, he's fine on abortion and all that. But Aaron O'Toole is a plain spoken guy. He speaks like a working man, and he gives little uh, hints of of where his um, of of where his sympathies really lie. I think. Uh, uh, inveighing against uh, the can- cancel culture, he wants to take back Ottawa from the radical left. He thinks that parents ought to be left with more decisions, you know, on their own about how to raise their families. Uh, I, I think I think that conservatives sort of know more where he stands, and he particularly, uh, he's an outsider. Sixty-eight uh, percent of Canadians have never yet heard of him. So one of the things he's going to have to do uh, is get better known, right? Uh, among right. most most Canadians, but he's the closest thing uh, to um, to you know what they once had the the, the uh, incredible saga of the mayor of Toronto, Rob Ford, and and now Doug Ford, who's <laughs> premier of Ontario. Uh, that sort of real blue collar, you know, kind of gut level uh, populist conservative, and I think. It was almost inevitable that, you know, look, conservatism is going to be subject to the same stresses and the same direction change uh, in Canada uh, as it is in the United States. I mean, less of the uh, sort of neoliberal, you know, free market, you know, no deficit spending, small government and more of the sort of blue collar, you know, working class populism style uh, and in a way, when you when you look at it that way, it's maybe no surprise that he won. Um, moving on, I know that we uh, this had actually happened before our last podcast. We didn't comment it. That's the uh, official recognition of Israel by the United Arab uh, Emirates. And um, so, do you have anything to tell us about? I don't know Dubai and what they're doing, and I don't know where's this going. Yeah, well. The financial sector in Israel is quite excited that now there are way more opportunities for business deals with Dubai. Uh, this is 
only the third Arab state to ever recognize and have formal relations with Israel, the other two being Egypt and Jordan, and it being now the first Gulf state. And there's a lot of talk that other Gulf states might actually follow, whether it's Oman or Morocco. We're not sure who will be next. But a lot of this has to do with, you know, over the years, countries have been getting closer with Israel as they have the common enemy of Iran. Uh, there was also a deal with the UAE that Israel, for the current time being, would not impede on the West Bank. It was a pretty informal agreement, I would say, Neil. There really didn't have a timetable, and I would say Israel probably came on top in that agreement. Yeah, I'm not sure this is going to do, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu any good. I mean, that guy is being, you know, criticized anyway, uh, because the, you know, the right wing thinks any concession is too much. And of course, the uh, union party, or I should say the people on his left, you know, think that anything he does is bad anyway. Um, I I don't know if this I, I don't know if this will help Netanyahu. But you're right, it can hurt him, and it does it does add I think real stature uh, to to Israel in the eyes of the Arab world. The United Arab Emirates has a is very respected. They're the one uh, military uh, that actually uh, is effective. <laughs> Yeah. It was, you know, they're there now. And there's the word in the Pentagon is, is that, uh, you know, the UAE is the little Sparta. You know, they actually produce soldiers that fight. I mean, they're they're very high tech. They're very disciplined. And when they uh, actually abandon the struggle in Yemen, uh, basically, that's when Saudi Arabia says, well, if you're going, I guess we'll sue for peace and we're going to get out, too. Um <laughs> And uh, I think similarly, their their brief involvement in the uh, in the Libyan war. But and again, very high, high profile. And I think we know why this is happening. The longer term forces is uh, the the arc of Iran of, you know, from Iran to Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon. Uh, I think that both you know, most of the Arab states have kind of given up, certainly Saudi Arabia given up trying to do anything about Lebanon. and I think there's a growing agreement that uh, this whole thing with the Palestinians is kind of yesteryear, and it really doesn't ad- address what we're now worried about. Uh, it, that probably has been true for some time, but but you know we're, we're you know we're finally seeing it happen. I don't know who's going to be the next. Is it going to be Oman? Um, uh, is it going to be um, um, Bahrain or you know another Gulf state? I. I don't know, Sudan, maybe I, we don't know, but there may be others joining in. Um, and a very, very interesting. Speaking of which, um, getting involved in the complexity is the ongoing uh, war in Libya, which I'm not sure if it's over, uh, if it's over Libya or over, over oil. Maybe you can tell us. <laughs> well, w- probably one of the bigger piece of news is that the Tripoli government has asked for a ceasefire, which uh, General Haftar has completely dismissed. He said that it was a media ploy to have the world sympathize with Tripoli and they would backstab him as soon as he stepped down. So the ceasefire is not happening. And then when we get to the whole oil and drilling in the Mediterranean that we keep talking about with Turkey, Turkey still has drilling vessels in Greek waters. And Greece, Greeks have gone to the EU. They are asking for sanctions to be placed on Turkey. Germany has said we want to exhaust all diplomatic solutions first. France 
is keeping their navy in the Mediterranean. They're more siding with the Greeks that we need to deal with Turkey now. But a little interesting piece of news is Turkey just announced that they have discovered a massive gas deposit in the Black Sea within their water rights. And they claim they can access this gas by 2023. Most experts say that if there is a gas deposit, they won't be able to get it to 2025. But Turkey is really reliant on uh, imports for their energy. I think their energy import bill last year was $41 billion. They mostly have pipelines coming in from Iran and Russia. And part of the reason they're in the Mediterranean now is they want to become independent. So possibly if they can make this Black Sea uh, deposit work, they will leave the Mediterranean. Well, you wonder if uh, you wonder about the timing of that discovery. That surely was an opportune moment in their <laughs> negotiations, and and maybe it was time to actually help the lira. You know, their their exchange rate has been suffering lately. I I don't know. I I, I do know that. Turkey seems to be involved in all kinds of oil, uh, spectacular oil affairs in several different places. You remember one of the reasons they backed the UN, the UN endorsed uh, Tripoli government was because it agreed to split the Mediterranean between Libya and Turkey as though Greece didn't exist in between. <laughs> so right. Crete was basically divided up. It had no zone of control whatsoever. Uh, so that you've got Turkey exploring near Crete. You've got the other situation of Turkey exploring near its own "quote unquote" republic in um, in uh, you know Cyprus, right? right. Uh, I I don't know. It's strange. Obviously, the world is not siding with Turkey on this one. I mean, you know the the one thing you could say on behalf of Turkey, I suppose, and you know if you if you want to understand why it feels aggrieved, is that all these little uh, Greek islands, which are often very near Turkey. They're all assumed to have their own little zone of control. So you can imagine Turkey saying, well, well wait a second. You know, we, we, we don't have any of our usual zone of control because, you know, Italy retained, uh, excuse me, Greece retained uh, all of these uh, islands, you know, so close to us. Uh, but look, I mean, this goes back uh, centuries, uh, this problem between the, 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 the Greeks and the Turks. And it, it wasn't solved um, by World War One, it wasn't solved in the decade afterward. After that, under Ataturk, and it's uh, and it was certainly not being solved now. Uh, as usual, the French, you know, always show up with a with a clash of uh, of army trumpets, you know, wanting to use their wanting to show off their military. Well, Germany is sort of the the more plodding, patient, you know, Pacific approach. Well. We'll see where it goes. Uh, hopefully, there's no fighting soon, but but you're, you're never sure. Uh, let me go on and talk a little bit about um, uh, Italy. I mean, these are just some updates. Uh, we've talked uh, frequently about uh, the Five Star Movement and their alliance with the Democratic Party uh, and how much, you know, to some extent, how much better the Democratic Party is doing, uh, you know, since the pandemic started. Uh, getting reasonable, reasonably high approval ratings from the public. And meanwhile, uh, Matteo Salvini and the Lega has, has fallen, uh, dropped from something like you know 37% national approval to 25%, uh, uh, partly due to just Matteo Salvini's you know, very strange antics. But the five-star movement, uh, which 
you know, was founded on these very uh, populist principles of strict term limits on on members who actually hold office and never joining, never forming an alliance with any other official party. Well, it turned out they did in August, uh, I don't know, 20, 22nd to 24th, they had an online referendum of, of uh, five-star members, and they ditched both of those principles. So you're no longer limited to two terms, um, strictly speaking, and the party is no longer barred from formal alliances, so they can now officially declare their alliance with the Democratic Party. This is obviously a survival mechanism because, you know, the five star simply isn't as popular, um, even in the South, where they once were popular, and they've been losing uh, to the radical right. It is true that the uh, Lega is no longer as popular, but apparently other parties, particularly the Brothers of Italy, uh, are picking up steam. The total support uh, for the radical right is probably close to 40% in Italy right now. So they made a huge threat. And uh, right now, Italy is about to receive all this money coming in from the EU, and they'll start dispersing it. And they'll probably have a lot of, um, you know, influence uh, due to, to, to being able to, to determine where that money is going. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the right wing in Italy remains very strong, uh, and exceptionally strong among the young. Uh, and it it remains out there. So I'm sure that the Democratic Party, uh, the the PD, is uh, relieved uh, that the five star have sort of uh, renounced some of their some of their scruples and have sort of uh, become a more normal party in their alliance. One one more thing we did want to touch on, uh, Christian, is uh, Belarus, and this is uh, Alexander Lukashenko. Often he's referred to as Europe's last dictator, although actually whether Belarus is part of Europe is kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, but he's sending his security forces against the uh, the protesters after the, the after the election. Well, that was that probably should have elected Zvetlana Tikhanovskaya, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Tikhanovskaya was the ex-school teacher. She probably won it. She has a husband, V-logger, who was thrown in jail. I mean, we kind of went over that story. Well, these have been very nonviolent protests, although it turns out at least four people have been killed. But a lot of these protesters are being framed, thrown into jail. He's sending his security forces against them. Uh, the the uh, protesters are threatening a general strike. And Lukashenko is making repeated calls to Moscow to making sure that Vladimir Putin uh, is going to support him, you know, if he he really needs him. Uh, And uh, the EU leaders are warning Putin, you know, not to intervene. Uh, And interestingly, Vladimir Putin right now is has had some difficulties with uh, Lukashenko in the past. You know, Lukashenko did not really agree to the tight union with Russia. Uh, that that Putin wanted, uh, and at various instances, a sort of bridle against you know too much supervision by Putin. So Putin just wants to make him sweat. Apparently, Putin's really not doing anything at the moment, uh, and is just wondering, is watching him squirm and get all the security people into action. But there is no question in my mind that Putin will not, could not allow any other <laughs> any other outcome than Lukashenko or someone like him uh, to take his place. Just to quote uh, uh, from an interesting comment by the French EU commissioner, uh, uh, who who basically said, well, after all, Belarus is not Europe. 
So, you know, there you go. Uh, you know, I guess uh, I guess Ukraine isn't either, and and never will be if uh, if Russia finds its way. This is the old, you know, this is the old problem. Why why Eastern Europeans hate to be called and always did hate to be called Eastern Europeans, right? That meant that they were like way out there, not really part of us. Uh, I I made that mistake once. I, I believe I went to um, to Prague once uh, for a number of business meetings, and I made the mistake of referring to to um, you know the Czech Republic and well Slovakia at the time. It was separate and talking about them as in Eastern Europe. Well, that was a mistake. No, no, no. We're Central <laughs> Europe. What are you talking about? <laughs> the East is way out there. Um, but but it, it's an interesting distinction. And of course, it means to a lot of the people who live in these regions uh, that they're sort of beyond the pale, beyond the law, beyond norms, beyond natural law, natural rights, whatever. Uh, but anyway, that's where it stands. Um, uh, the Belarusian people, uh, their ethnicity, their language, such as it is, uh, has always been regarded along with uh, Ukrainians as part of the, uh, you know, the near abroad uh, for Russia and cannot possibly be allowed uh, to escape their very close control. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the uh, the election. Uh, it's getting closer. We got the conventions going on. The, the, um, the Democratic uh, convention is over. The Republican one has started. Uh, the approval ratings have really held pretty much steady since our last podcast. It's about 55 to 44, about 11 point spread. About the same, uh, I think uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see it. Biden may have gotten a very slight uh, bounce from his convention, probably not a big one. Uh, and the betting futures are actually getting closer. Uh, the it's now 55 to 44 percent, which so you can see that the futures markets are beginning to say, well, you know, let's not count Trump out yet. Uh, you talked, I think, in our last podcast, uh, Christian, about your opinion about the Democratic convention. Yep. Um, you, you were not impressed. You just thought it was kind of a glitzy infomercial. And, and I guess that's that's the fact that it wasn't live. Right. I, I was the only the only thing that impressed me in overall tone is is the is this sort of kind, positive and empathic tone that the the Democrats um, and, and Joe Biden in particular are trying to project. Uh, I did look closely at at Biden's speech and it was there were some phrases in there that I think were really uh, indicative of the tone of the campaign and what he's going to try to do. This is the end. He talks about the end of this chapter of American darkness, decency, compassion, science, and democracy. It's all on the ballot. Um, uh, Here's a good quote I like. You know, you can, you know, what do you expect from Trump? Four more years of what he's been over the last four years. A president who takes no responsibility, refuses to lead, blames others, cozies up to dictators, fans the flames of hate and division, Wakes up every day believing the job is all about him, never about you. <laughs> That's a pretty good line. Um, yeah. And uh, and and interesting that cozying up to dictators was uh, several times in his speech. Uh, I I don't know if that helps him. Uh, he's he looked a little bit at the very end. I could swear he looked a little bit like Clint Eastwood. You know. Um, they're they're about the same age, uh, you know. <laughs> kind of look like a little bit like Dirty Harry at the end, with that little smile coming out. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know how effective that's going to be. I do think, look, he's far ahead. He's not going to take many chances. And I think not only is this the kind of message that, that is, is kind of risk averse for him, but let's face it, he's way ahead. He didn't have to take a lot of risk. He'd be sort of um, uh, unwise to be taking a lot of risk. I'm looking a little bit. I don't know if you saw any of the uh, GOP convention that started. They had an interesting first day that showcased a lot of diversity. They had Herschel Walker talking. They had, you know, Governor Nikki Haley. They had uh, Senator Tim Scott. So you got, you know, Indian American and an African American. Uh, the the presentation by by Tim Scott I thought was particularly interesting. If anyone is looking to sort of the future of the Republican Party and what they may be able to do with him, very interesting speech from an African American from you know the Deep South. Uh, how he got elected, the story of his life, and a very interesting message uh, against the culture of racial victimization. He sort of talked about the root of, you know, opportunity zones and school choice and so sense, giving a sense of agency uh, to minorities and in general and, and uh, uh, black Americans in particular that he claimed the Democrats robbed them of. It's a very interesting line. Um, he He did not avoid uh, issues of, of race and racial justice. He just took a very different approach toward it. I, I think it was very interesting. If, if anyone's curious, I think that would be an, an interesting thing for uh, Republicans to explore. As you can imagine, everyone speaking at the uh, Republican convention is to some extent showcasing themselves for, for the distinct possibility of a post-Trump uh, Republican Party, right? Mm. Where do we stand now? Um, I think the positives for Biden, you know, just aside from where the polls are, uh, the positives for Biden are declining fluctuations in polls. Uh, the polls basically are pretty stable. They're not moving around a lot. They're moving around a lot less than they were in 2016. Uh, and that's partly due to another positive for Biden. Uh, there are fewer undecideds. I mean, look, I don't know if the anyone's not really yet made up their mind or has some distinct idea of what they want to do by this point. I mean, what are you waiting for? <laughs> I mean, if you have not, I mean, if you've just looked or if you've lived in America for the past four years, I mean, you, you know, you, it, it's not like whether you support one or the other, I can't imagine what new information is going to make up your mind, right? Um, there's no major third party candidate. And the polarization, again, is high and stable. I think those are all positives for Biden. Uh, and unlike in 2016, you don't have nearly as large a body of undecideds. What are the positives for Trump? Um, well, there may not be instability in the polls, but there's a lot of instability in politics and the economy and COVID-19. And if I were Trump, I would just be saying any instability helps me at this point, right? Anything that's unpredictable or could knock knock things around, and the other is, of course, mail-in ballots. Uh, Democrats will use them more than Republicans. Uh, the Economist actually just, I don't know, about three days ago came out with an interesting piece. They ran uh, Monte Carlo simulations of a thousand different uh, <laughs> uh, uh, outcomes uh, of the election. And they basically said it will likely give Trump about a uh, half or maybe a 0.6 percentage point advantage uh, due to the fact that uh, that some 
you know, significant share of these ballots will be invalid. You know, they won't be postmarked right. They won't be the 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 voter's name won't be validated against state records. You know, all the various reasons why a mail-in ballot can be invalidated. <clears throat> and then, of course, there's the GOP's natural uh, electoral college advantage, which in you know recent years has been hugely sizable, given the nature of the red zone, the rural you know base of the. Uh, of the red zone and just the enormous, uh, uh, you know, popularity edge uh, of the Democrats in very large blue zone states. So, you know, in effect, a lot of pro-Biden voters, a lot of uh, Democratic voters uh, will just be uncounted uh, because of uh, by dint of of, uh, state geography. So we're looking forward to the debates. And if you talk to Republicans today, they think it's kind of like that weapon, right? Yeah, things may look bad now in the polls, but it's our super weapon, right? <laughs> so you look forward. Well, they've got, we got a whole bunch of them coming up, and they're all going to be in the period of just about six weeks. We got one at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. That's uh, September 29th. So that will be in almost uh, just just over a month from now. October 7th in the uh, University of Utah in Salt Lake City. That will be the vice presidential debate. And then we'll have two more presidential debates, October 15th uh, in uh, Miami and October 22nd in Nashville. One interesting thought, however, is that Trump is making him, you know, Trump's talking about how, well, you know, a lot of people in the White House, he's going he's to do so great in these debates. You know, he's a born debater. He's a, and, and, and people are coming to the realization that he might be making a terrible mistake uh, by overinflating his own expectations, right? You, you always want to play your expectations down if you're playing the expectations game. So it's uh, really interesting. I think um, very recently the White House is sort of changing its tone a little bit in um, – saying that, oh, well, you know, Biden is a skilled debater. You know, he's been you know, 45 years in politics. Oh, my God, the guy is a master, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a recent, there's a little bit of recent uh, uh, change in tone. Uh, Christian, have you seen any of the uh, the GOP convention yet? Yeah, I have seen some of it. I think what I picked up on it was it was a much darker tone than the Democratic convention. You know, it was a lot of focusing on what the Democrats will do if they take over. And I don't know if that's an effective strategy. I know we've written a lot about pessimism in America is very high right now. And I don't know if people want to hear more pessimistic things or things that make them feel more uplifted. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and and I, I should say that, you know, <laughs> Nikki Haley and, and Tim Scott were not exactly representative of most of the people who who have and, and will be speaking at the GOP right. convention. You're right. Uh, and the I mean, this is this is the 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 uh, key, I think, to winning a lot of people for Trump is people who may not like Trump, right? They may they may find a lot of things about him that they find insufferable. But my God, we can't tolerate the other side, right? Whether it's Supreme Court or uh, what Biden's going to do with uh, fiscal policy or the Green New Deal or, or what's going to happen in foreign policy, right? It's right. In a way, it, it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, I don't like Trump, but it's better than the alternative. And that certainly seems to be particularly in the middle 
Um, it's hard to find someone in the in the high media uh, who says, I just absolutely love Trump. You know, this is the best. <laughs> it's just, you know, the best president I can ever imagine. No, the argument usually is, yeah, great son, me. I really wish we had something. But, you know, yet too much is at stake. Right. So so it is it is uh, logical. But you're right. It, it, it may or may not. Uh, it it may or may not work. We'll obviously going to see. Um, might as well get on at this point to talk about our uh, the Newswire piece. I was actually, there was another interesting piece I was going to do. I finally decided against it. I thought it was too technical. But uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, again, you can find out more details on our um, su- subscription. But we had an uh, interesting story I got a lot of responses to. Uh, and the story was about how boomers born in the year 1960 uh, may see huge reductions in their future Social Security benefits when they retire. And that is because, uh, you know, people might wonder, why why would a particular birth year matter? Well, it turns out to be, and this is just comes from my, you know, I, I've spent too many years studying Social Security than I ever wanted to, Christian. I, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it to my worst enemy. Uh, but it has to do with complexities of the way the benefit level is determined. Uh, each individual has something called an AIME, which is the average index monthly earnings. And it's basically your, your you know, relative wages relative to all other Americans in that year. But everything you do is all ultimately indexed to average wages in the year that you turn age 60. And guess who's turning age 60 in the year 2020, right? People born in 1960, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then later on, once they reach age 62 and are eligible for early retirement, obviously, if they retire later, they get the higher benefits and so on, and they get COLAs later. And, you know, there are all these things, but they're all geared to that primary benefit amount, which is governed by exactly where average wages are in the year you turn age 60. And it turns out that goes up and down, as you can imagine. And guess what's happening this year? (laughs) It's going way down, right? And you might even wonder, why is it going down? Uh, You know, average wages aren't going down too much. Well, it's because the way Social Security counts average wages is that they take into account everyone who files a W-2, everyone who has FICA, you know, taxable income for 2020, including uh, in January and early February, right before the pandemic hit, that'll all be part of the average. So even if they lost their jobs later, you could have all this income averaged over that. This could be a 10% decline in the average wage, the way Social Security accounts uh, it. Uh, this will be a permanent 10% decline in all future benefits for that particular cohort. This is a very unusual problem, by the way. Uh, the policymakers are waking up to it. There actually is a part of a bill uh, that's been introduced by uh, Democrats in the House to remedy it. But the problem is they want to do all kinds of other things uh, to enlarge Social Security. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, we're going to see if uh, we can get any kind of political consensus. That's, as you know, that's not easy to come by in Washington. And this is a program which has been on autopilot, right, year after year after year. It seems to work, uh, work function relatively well. No one counted on this very peculiar uh, uh, shift 
uh, in numbers. Uh, and we, we also know that Social Security is now destined to, uh, you know, be insolvent earlier uh, due to due to this uh, this this recession. Uh, that's no news to anyone. But this particular problem for the Jen Jones, Generation Jones cohort of 1960. Uh, well, well, we'll see how mad they get. We'll see how well they organize, too. I, I doubt if they'll organize that much. Not exactly a, a cohort known for tight political organizing. Um, finally, let me talk a little bit about this uh, uh, study I promised I'd say something about. This is a, a study from the uh, University of Arizona predicting that millions of boomers and Xers will struggle to sell their homes between now and the year 2040. So it's looking ahead 20 years. Uh, every year, uh, the author calculates, and this is um, uh, Arthur C. Nelson, uh, a single author. Uh, he calculates the sellers of some a half a million to a million homes will suffer a huge, you know, unsustainable price declines on their homes, especially particularly in suburban and rural areas. Ah, geez, finding something, uh, an easy way to evaluate this study. I I will say, uh, as an overall observation, that making a long-term housing forecast is a perilous enterprise. Uh, And I recall back in the early 90s, uh, it is, it's a a sea riddled with shipwrecks, Christian. (laughs) Uh, There is a, there's a famous instance back in the early 1990s when the economy was kind of running in low gear, when a who's who of American economists, and this actually included one of the biggest pessimists, was was Gregory Mankiw, the you know the boomer version later became the boomer version of Paul Samuelson. They all predicted that America was entering a huge, very long period, decades long era of depressed housing demand and home prices. Why? Because it seemed certain that a small baby bus generation of Xers would fail to buy new homes like boomers had bought them in the 1980s. Seems logical, right? I mean, that's just looking at demographics. Well, it didn't work out that way. And we all know that. Uh, falling mortgage rates and an accelerating economy turned out that inspired Xers uh, to leverage up and buy homes, even as boomers eagerly traded up and bought even bigger McMansions. So it turned out by the late 1990s. Housing was going like gangbusters, and and by uh, 2005, annual housing starts actually exceeded their peak year during the 1980s, completely contrary to everyone's projections. So anyway, uh, on that cautionary note, we look at this new study. Uh, One thing that I found immediately as a red flag is that Nelson is a neo-urbanist who has long argued against suburban sprawl, and he was already predicting plummeting demand for single-family homes uh, a decade ago, and uh, he strongly believes that compact, walkable communities are a superior living arrangement. I mean, this is kind of the neo-urbanist, you know, credo. They call them livable communities, apparently, because they believe anything else is not livable. <laughs> so there you are. Uh, that That's okay. I mean, I don't mind that, except, you know, you're just forewarned as a reader that, that he has strong convictions on this subject. Well, you get into the study and you can look at it. It made a lot of press. That's why I'm, you know, it's it's a Journal of Comparative Urban Law and Policy. It it it, it and it deservedly received a lot of press. This guy did a lot of work on it. Uh, it's it's an interesting read. But once you get inside the report, 
you find that Nelson's forecast is built on an interesting set of assumptions. He dumps all homeowners into three boxes, depending on their age. So if you're under age 35, you are deemed a starter. And if you're 35 to 64, you are a peak homeowner. And if you're 65 plus, you are by definition a downsizing homeowner, right? And so what he does is he says from 2010 to 2040, the starter population will hardly increase at all. And of the remaining growth, um, which is about 22 million households, he estimates, only 20% will be peak and 80% will be downsizing. So you can understand what this means. It means that we currently have, I mean, well, you, you, you see the challenge. Uh, he assumes it's this huge number of senior households will demand a different sort of home, a downsizing home, right? So they all are going to want to, you know, sell their current big home and 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 move into some, I don't know, livable home, you know, something that's smaller mm-hmm. and, and more appropriate for them. And so this will push almost all new construction, such as it is, towards smaller, you know, neo-urban units, while leaving America's enormous existing stock of big homes on those that are on big lots. Uh, even without future construction, uh, will be a number almost large enough to accommodate all new starter and peak households. So given the inevitable geographic mismatch uh, between supply and demand, you can just imagine there'll be a lot of areas with, with you know excess supply of homes. And he tilts the argument further in his favor by assuming that everyone's housing preferences will steadily shift towards small units. He claims that the, all these ARP sh- uh, surveys showing that, you know, today's new boom seniors intend to age in place uh, are totally mistaken. He thinks that aging in place is involuntary. Boomers really want to move into smaller homes, <laughs> despite what okay. boomers say. No, I don't want to move. Uh, and he also he also um, uh, uh, in, says that millennials, you know, want to continue to move into smaller homes. So anyway, the, the bottom line is, is that there's something like 18 uh, redundant homes on large lots. And uh, he has maps and so on, and you can look at all this. Um, my bottom line is I don't accept it. Uh, I think his biggest problem is this life cycle bin approach. Uh, there is no law of nature that dictates that people always prefer the same housing at each phase of life. Different generations acquire different tastes and values and make different life choices. I mean, think about it. Midlife boomers chose to live in much larger houses than their own GI generation parents did at the same age. And now that they're retiring, most boomers are committed to aging in place rather than relocating to senior communities and nursing homes, as did so many of their GI generation parents, right? Uh, What makes uh, Nelson think that uh, they're all going to just, you know, suddenly revert back to some earlier standard? One reason that a lot of senior boomers want to age in place is because they're still employed. Another is that they want to stay close to their children. Uh, when we've talked so much about this, you know, on our on our newswire, with you know, they're so much uh, more closely connected with their own children than their own parents were with them at the same age. An historically large share of these young adults, these millennials, are in fact living in their boomer parents' homes. So, in fact, the boomer parents' homes is, is, is just serving a much more dominant purpose in their lives, particularly their lives in the multi-generational family, than it ever did with GIs. Anyway, all of these generational shifts don't figure into Nelson's analysis. 
I also think that the millennial preference for smaller homes, although I think it is true, it may be to some extent due to the fact that they're marrying and having kids at older ages and can't afford large homes near near uh, near the cities where they want to have careers. And over the past few years, in fact, millennials have started to vote with their feet in favor of suburbia after all. And we've we've taken a look at some of that data. The huge net move of young adults towards cities was really more true of the years, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012. Certainly not true, reversed uh, by 2018-2019. Finally, and I think this is important, uh, I want to stress that I don't entirely disagree with Nelson on all accounts. Uh, Most importantly, I agree with him that over the next 20 years, the total demand for housing units of all types, you know, regardless whether you're talking about, you know, inner city, you know, multi-unit homes or, or, you know, single-family homes on large lots, demand for for housing of all types will slow to by far the lowest year-over-year growth rate in American history. I think that's this will be driven, most importantly, by an ongoing deceleration in the growth rate in the number of U.S. adults. This is a demographic projection that's nearly certain, right? Mm-hmm. And second, it will be driven by an ongoing increase in the number of adults per household, as a rising share of units house multi-generational families. Uh, I don't, this is a generational trend, not a demographic trend, but I don't see it changing anytime soon. And as you know, uh, Christian, we write about this trend all the time. What Nelson wants to say is that all of this deceleration will be borne by large exurban and rural homes on big lots. I don't share Nelson's certainty on this point. And I will say this, and this is kind of my concluding remark, (laughs) the COVID-19 pandemic uh, points to how much can go wrong uh, with the the kind of scenario he projects. I mean, just think about this year. Where have home prices and rents been rising fastest this summer? Big houses in the exurbs. Where have they been sinking? Apartments and condos in the major cities. And we're talking about, you know, trend-setting downtowns in Manhattan, Boston, and San Francisco. These are the places where no one thought prices would drop. Among all these cultural creatives who have recently been migrating away from the big cities with their laptops are millions of millennial professionals. And many find themselves pleasantly surprised by how much nicer life is without the stress and commute and high cost of urban living. So let's be humble here. You know, whenever as demographers we're making forecasts, we have to respect how many different directions society can take and how tastes may change. I think a lot of this, uh, what people are learning about living away from office, about being online, about telecommuting, so to speak, you know, to give it its traditional word, uh, we may not revert back to. A lot of this stuff may be path-dependent. I think a lot of the habits we're learning, we may not entirely unlearn. And I will just quote Nelson himself. This is uh, an article he wrote back in, 19, uh, in 2007, so that's 13 years ago. He dismissed the prospect of many people ever working away from urban central offices with these words, don't count on telecommuters. That was actually the subtitle of one of his articles. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> not going to happen. Well, 
Maybe now, 13 years later, he would like to take those words back. But I, I think that uh, that part of his prediction I can't go along with. So, so there, you know, there we are. Um, I don't know. Have you talked to their friends about how they feel about, uh, I don't know, working away from being in the office every day? Uh, can you offer it. us? A, they love it. Yeah, I imagine yeah. they do. I imagine one issue, which which definitely is an issue for millennials, is community, right? Uh, that is right. A, that is an issue for millennials, right? How do you get that community? I think also as a, as a young and aspiring person, you don't want to be left out. Uh, but then on the other hand, today, everyone's left out, right? You're on an equal playing field yeah. <laughs> with everyone. I mean, you know, it's not like there are some people near the water cooler and you're not, right? Which used to be right. the case with with, uh, with telecommuters. So, um, yeah, uh, I think life could move in a different direction. I think particularly uh, this, this movement toward, uh, I should say, not movement toward, but but virtually a renaissance in, in multi-generational family living and how that might revalue in a very important way, the, you know, the large home uh, in, in the large property uh, is something that we should be respectful of because uh, I think that could be definitely a sleeper uh, in the years coming up. Again, thanks all of you for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.